You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Explorers. This is part two of our series on American Explorer, Zebulon Montgomery Pike. Last time, we left Pike in St. Louis in the summer of 1806, preparing for a journey into the Louisiana Territory. The previous year, Pike had ventured up the Mississippi River, exploring and documenting the people and places at the behest of his mentor, General James Wilkinson. Pike had done a commendable job, considering the circumstances, and he had gained valuable experience. But before Pike strikes out west, let's set the stage for things to come, because there are political intrigues going on that need to be understood. In 1806, tensions between Spain and the United States were running high. The Spanish viewed the grown republic as a threat to their colonial empire. They disputed the borders of the Louisiana Purchase and resented incursions of traders and merchants into their lands. At this time, Spain was a massive empire, encompassing much of South and Central America, the Caribbean, plus the Southwest region of North America, modern-day Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. And they also controlled Florida, plus territories in Africa and Asia. But the size of the Spanish empire hit a crumbling behemoth, Many of these regions were bubbling cauldrons of revolution, with a restless population that saw themselves less and less tied to the mother country with every passing generation. In fact, much of the empire would break away in a series of revolts within the next 20 years. But the Spanish crown, like so many large bureaucracies, was blind to the wave that would eventually sweep over them. And in the 1800s, the reaction to an external threat like the United States was to meet it with force. Spain moved troops into the disputed regions and increased their courtship of the native Indian tribes in the southwest and the plains, and they took a hard stance against merchants who tried to slip into their territory. Speaking of merchants, this is a good time to talk about the trade situation in the southwest. In the early 1800s, the key trading post in the region was Santa Fe. Santa Fe was the provincial capital of the territory. Initially, goods came to the town from the south. But as the Mississippi River opened up new opportunities, a steady flow of goods, particularly furs, began to arrive in Santa Fe overland from St. Louis. The Spanish strictly controlled this trade, but American merchants eyed the Santa Fe market as ripe for exploitation. So that's the trade situation, and with that out of the way, now it is time to bring back into our story Mr. Aaron Burr, the former Vice President of the United States. If you recall, Burr had been run out of politics after killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. He had come west with an ambitious scheme. What Burr wanted to do was essentially raise an army in the west and invade what is now Texas and New Mexico, 
and possibly even take control of the key American port of New Orleans. Burr would draw his army from a mix of ambitious and disgruntled Westerners. He felt that the population would support his endeavor, and he envisioned setting up his own nation, perhaps even sweeping up all of Mexico as well. Burr even sent envoys to the British and the French to try and obtain support for his plan. If Burr's ambitious plot couldn't gain the necessary support, he could always look to trigger a war between Spain and the United States and use what resources he had to seize key assets in Texas and New Mexico. He could make a fortune out of that. Whatever Burr's exact plans, he found a potential ally in the head of the United States Army, General James Wilkinson. Wilkinson, as we have described in our previous episode, was a classic con man. He played every side of the table, as well as underneath it, just off the side of it, and any other spot he could find. Wilkinson had, in fact, been taking bribes from Spain for nearly 20 years, even flirting with the idea of handing over the Kentucky-Tennessee region to Spain in the 1780s. In 1806, he had been actively engaged with the Spanish authorities, feeding them inside information, offering them advice, and generally looking out for their interests in exchange for cash. He had alerted the Spanish to the various expeditions being sent out by President Thomas Jefferson. The Spanish would turn back one expedition that had gone up the Red River, and they made several attempts to stop Lewis and Clark, but would fail with them. All of this makes for a volatile situation, and into this mess, Wilkinson sent out another player, Zebulon Pike, a 26-year-old American officer. Pike's expedition had several objectives. His first task was to lead a group of 51 Osage Indians to their home on the Osage River. The Osage had been captured by the Potawatomis, and the United States had ransomed them. By returning the Osage to their homes, Jefferson was attempting to demonstrate the goodwill, as well as the power of the United States. There was also a delegation of eight Indians, Pawnees, Osages, and Otoes, who had been visiting Washington and were returning home. The purpose of their visit had been sort of a goodwill tour, but ultimately it was Jefferson's way of showing off the might of America. He wanted the Native leaders to go home and recount their journey to their tribes and impress upon everyone the greatness of the United States. In addition to returning the natives to their homes, Pike was to negotiate treaties with the Indians that he encountered, including the powerful Pawnees and the Comanches. The Comanche were especially of interest, as they were seen as the most formidable warriors in the West. They had been allies of the Spanish for decades, and the Americans wanted them on their side if war came to their region. Pike was also to map the Arkansas and Red Rivers, including finding their sources, if possible. During his journeys, he was to gather data along the way, much like he had done the previous year when he'd went up the Mississippi. He was to find out the size of the Indian populations, note the types and numbers of animals, take environmental readings, collect unique specimens, identify good spots to build forts and settlements, that sort of thing. He was also instructed to take note of how a trade route to Santa Fe could be established. And finally, he was always to keep an eye open for any information that could help the United States if war with Spain was to break out. It should be noted that Pike's expedition was authorized by Wilkinson, not Thomas Jefferson. And this is an important distinction. You need to ask yourself, what was Wilkinson's reasoning for sending out Pike? Was it more than just a scientific and exploratory mission? Perhaps Wilkinson was trying to spark a war with the Spanish. What better way to do that than to send a military expedition deep into the Louisiana Territory, not far from Spanish settlements? Such an incident might give Wilkinson, and Aaron Burr, a reason to hatch their plot. Although we should note that Wilkinson, in his orders, specifically told Pike to avoid contact with the Spanish and play dumb if he ran into them. 
Another idea was that Wilkinson's interests may have been commercial. As noted, the Santa Fe market was seen as a potential gold mine. Perhaps the general's eyes were on that prize. And what was Pike's hand in all of this? Was he just a soldier following orders, or had he become actively involved with Wilkinson and even Aaron Burr? Some of Pike's actions will make you wonder, and people have debated his role for 200 years. But most historians tend to agree that Pike was innocent of any skullduggery, and I tend to agree. I don't think Pike was involved in any sort of nefarious schemes. He wasn't trying to ignite a war with the Spanish, and he wasn't plotting with Wilkinson or Aaron Burr in any way. He was a soldier doing his job. That simple. I do not doubt that he was told to keep an open mind about things. His mission was one of science and exploration, but hey, if you see anything or come up with any ideas on how it would help the U.S. in a war with Spain, take a mental note and let us know later. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you get the picture. In the end, this was Wilkinson's expedition, so there are probably many layers of advantage to the entire thing for him. Perhaps Pike could scout out a good trade route to Santa Fe. Maybe he could cause an international incident that would trigger a war. Or maybe he just brings back a lot of good information. All those things benefit Wilkinson in some fashion. And to me, that is classic Wilkinson. He deployed an asset, Pike, and let things play out. No matter what happened, there was value for the general. And I do want to note that what Wilkinson had Pike doing was very much in line with the aims of President Thomas Jefferson. It was not unlike the expeditions Jefferson had set out previously, including Lewis and Clark's. So, with all of that out of the way, we can get on with Pike. He would depart from Fort Bellefontaine in St. Louis on July 15, 1806. Pike would have 22 soldiers with him, including 17 of his damned rascals. The second in command of the expedition was Lieutenant James Biddle Wilkinson. General Wilkinson's son. The party also had an interpreter, a man named Vasquez, as well as a civilian doctor, John H. Robinson. The inclusion of a doctor seemed like a good idea, but it is important to know that Robinson was possibly a spy for Wilkinson. There is no doubt he will fulfill an important function on the expedition, but there are some decisions made later by Robinson that will raise eyebrows, so stay tuned. As Pike sets out on his journey, I would recommend taking a look at a map of the rivers of the American West. I put some on the website at explorerspodcast.com. It might help you follow along our journey to know where the Red, the Osage, the Arkansas, the Missouri, and the Rio Grande all exist, as they play parts in our tale. The expedition started out by heading up the Missouri River to the Osage River. Pike had two bateaux, shallow draft, flat-bottom boats best suited for the journey, one for the whites and another for the Indians. As with his trip up the Mississippi, Pike and his better hunters would walk along the banks and hunt while they went. The first goal of the expedition was to reach the Osage villages and deliver the 51 ransomed Indians to their homes. The trip was slow going. The rivers, especially the Osage, were loaded with twists and turns. The expedition would often have days where they would travel 20 or 30 miles on the river, but by the crow flies, they would have only covered 5 miles because of all the twists in the river. The expedition would suffer its first loss just four days out of St. Louis when Private Kennerman, formerly Sergeant Kennerman, the same man who had been court-martialed the previous winter by Pike, deserted. He would never be heard from again. As they neared the Osage villages, the Indians set out on foot as the pace grew exceedingly slow due to the river being choked with debris. Then on August 18th, Pike abandoned the boats altogether when the Osage became impassable. He and his men set out on foot, as the village was at this point only about six miles away. There were actually three Osage villages, in which lived about 3,000 to 4,000 Indians. 
The Osage were thrilled to have their people returned, and Pike touted the power and benevolence of the Americans, pointing out that the Spanish and French had not come to their aid. Pike reported that the Osage gave him a flattering reception to show their gratitude. So, the first part of Pike's mission had been a great success. His next task was to head northwest toward Pawnee Lands, in a village on the Republican River. Pike's goal was to open up negotiations with the Pawnee and bring them into the American fold. Plus, he was to help facilitate a peace between the Osage and the Pawnee. To that end, Pike brought a delegation of Osage Indians with him. He would purchase horses from the Osage, at outrageous prices, he reported, and head northwest across the plains. It would be a long and tiring journey. The late summer heat was oppressive, and the ground they traveled over was rough and uneven. The plains were dusty and water was in short supply. The native guides that had come along with them deserted, taking with them some of the horses. The weary expedition reached the Pawnee village on September 25th, near the border of present-day Kansas and Nebraska. The Pawnee chief was a man named Shari Tarish. Sorry if I butchered that name there. Anyhow, he would welcome Pike, as well as the Osage delegation, and everyone would smoke the peace pipe and eat food together. It was at this time that Pike learned that just a few weeks earlier, a force of more than 600 Spanish soldiers heading south had come to the village looking for American explorers. The news was likely a stunner for Pike because he came to the conclusion that the Spanish were out looking for him. It was not Pike the Spanish were after. They had been searching for Lewis and Clark, who were on the return journey from the Pacific Northwest. In fact, signs of the Spanish were everywhere. A Spanish flag flew over the Pawnee village, and the Spanish had handed out medals to the Pawnees, a source of pride to many of the Indians. The goal of the large force that the Spanish had dispatched was likely not to just head off Lewis and Clark, but to impress upon the Plains Indians the power of the Spanish. And the Spanish brought dire warnings to the Pawnee, letting them know that the Americans were coming, and unlike the Spanish, they would take their lands and make them alter their way of life. Pike countered by offering gifts to the Pawnee, as well as medals and an American flag. Ah, the flag. If you had listened to part one of Pike, you'll know that the flag is a touchy thing for the man. The flag is more than a symbol. It is an acknowledgement of sovereignty and respect. To see the Spanish flag flying over the Pawnee village, which was technically American soil in Pike's eyes, went against everything Pike believed. Thus, Pike asked Shari Tarish to take down the flag. The Pawnees had a long history with the Spanish, and in reality, Shari Tarish probably recognized that he was between a rock and a hard place. His people were between two great empires. The man was likely weighing the long-term well-being of his nation when Pike made the request, and he tried to straddle the middle ground by saying that he had two esteemed fathers and that he respected them both. But Pike would have none of that. He saw the hesitation in the Pawnees, and he told them that they could no longer serve two fathers. In Jared Orsi's book, Citizen Explorer, Orsi credits Pike with his choice of words in dealing with the Pawnee. Pike, who we frequently criticize for not understanding the nuances of a situation, seems to have struck the right chord. His use of the terms and themes of fatherhood and brotherhood were effective, terms understood and respected by the Pawnee. Pike was also blunt with the Indians. He told them that within a year the Americans would stop the Spanish from coming to their lands, and they would not tolerate a Spanish flag flying over American territory. And he said that if anything happened to him and his men, it would cause more young American warriors to return to exact retribution. In the end, Shari Tarish took down the Spanish flag and handed it to Pike. The capitulation by the Pawnees was significant. It was a recognition of the future. 
With regard to the Spanish flag, Pike later admitted he probably pushed the Pawnees too hard over the matter. Recognizing this, he returned the flag to Shari Tarish, who were reportedly overjoyed at the gesture. He told them never to fly it in the presence of American troops. But Pike's victory was symbolic in many ways. The Spanish still held great sway over the entire village. You could not just sweep away the long relationship in one night. Many of the Pawnee were undoubtedly angry with their chief. Perhaps as a way to flex his muscles, Sharitarish informed Pike that his men could go no further into Pawnee territory, something he had told the Spanish as well. But Pike informed the Pawnees that he would go where he wanted. It was American territory, not Pawnee. Tensions would remain high between the Americans and the Pawnees in the coming days. Shari Tarish refused to sell the Americans much-needed horses, and Pike was forced to purchase them at hugely inflated rates. On October 7, 1806, Pike and his troops set out to the south, aiming to reconnect with the Arkansas River. Pike's version of what happened next is quite subdued, saying that he had a summit with the Pawnee, but not much else. But several years later, in 1811, an Indian agent interviewed Shari Tarish, who gave a much more dramatic rendering of the incident. The chief said that 500 Pawnee warriors had assembled to stop Pike. Shari Tarish said that he tried to dissuade the young officer from going further, but Pike said that only death would stop him. In the end, it was Shari Tarish who blinked, saying that he would feel himself a coward if he destroyed Pike. It was, after all, 500 to 25. Shari Tarish added that if the Spanish wanted him stopped, let them do it themselves. And thus, Pike was free to go. The Indian agent who had interviewed Shari Tarish, George C. Sibley, said that when he was there in 1811, the village still spoke of the brave young American's visit five years earlier. And so the second step of Pike's mission into the Louisiana Territory was complete. He had come to the Pawnee village and, at least in his mind, struck an accord with the Pawnee. The Indians had recognized American sovereignty. By doing so, they were acknowledging that they would not go to war with the Osage, and they would reject future Spanish overtures. Again, how much of that really happened is another story. But Pike's visit did lay the groundwork for American expansion. Pike and his band headed south, aiming to connect with the Arkansas River. The expedition simply followed the Spanish. 600-plus men leave a lot of signs of passage, even a few weeks later. In mid-October, Pike reached the Arkansas. The plan all along had been to break up the party at this point, with one group heading down the river while another went up. The men would remain 10 days building canoes, and on October 28th, Lieutenant Wilkinson, five soldiers, and the remaining Osage guides headed down the river. They would have a difficult journey, but they would successfully reach the Mississippi River and return home. That left Pike with 15 men on horseback. He turned up the river, determined to find the headwaters of the Arkansas. He was also keen to make contact with the Comanches. On November 15th, Pike sighted what appeared to be a small blue cloud to the west. This was his first glimpse of the Rocky Mountains, or what were called the Mexican Mountains. The party gave three cheers at the site. The blue cloud he spotted was what Pike would call the Grand Peak, but better known today as Pike's Peak. It is the highest mountain on the southern front range of the Rockies, rising up to a little over 14,000 feet. One note about Pike with regard to judging distance. He will frequently underestimate how far things are away, and just how high the mountains were. It was as if the sheer scope of the mountains in the wide open west, something he had never experienced, distorted him and his men's judgments. It is not an uncommon issue for people in similar situations, and it will cause Pike problems in the future. Before we take Pike and his men into the Rockies, let's do a quick trip back east and see what's up with our friends James Wilkinson and Aaron Burr. 
In the spring of 1806, the Spanish had been sending troops into Texas in case of war with the United States. Throughout the summer, tensions escalated, and by fall, a conflict seemed imminent. A Spanish force crossed the Subine River, which marked the border of modern-day Texas and Louisiana, putting them within striking distance of New Orleans. For his part, Aaron Burr was busy raising men and money to hatch his scheme of spearheading an invasion of Texas once war began. But at this point, General Wilkinson seems to have lost his faith in Burr. The former vice president was being accused of many things, including treason, and people were weary of the man. Wilkinson's name was being bandied about in the same sentence as Burr's, and the general was worried where this was all heading. He seems to have sensed that Burr was a bad gamble. In October, Wilkinson received a coded message, supposedly from Burr, in which Burr stated that he had between 500 and 1,000 men ready to move once Wilkinson gave the word. The letter said they would seize Louisiana, Texas, and Mexico, and set up a new kingdom, Burr at the head, and Wilkinson as his second-in-command. This infamous letter was likely not actually from Burr, but whoever did send it, one of Burr's lieutenants or allies, we don't know, offered Wilkinson an opportunity. Wilkinson doctored the letter so as not to implicate himself, then sent it on to the president, warning him of Burr's plot and thus casting himself as an innocent and a patriot. Having pushed Burr to arm's length, Wilkinson had no desire for war anymore. By early November, he would strike a deal with the Spanish. The two forces would withdraw their armies a safe distance, the Spanish to the western side of the Subine, and the Americans to the town of Natchitoches, roughly 50 miles away. The move would diffuse tensions, and Aaron Burr's chances of igniting a war with Spain fell to next to nothing, as the federal government, now aware of Burr's plans, went on alert. Within a few months, Burr would be in jail, facing charges of treason. So the tensions between the Americans and the Spanish were on the back burner. Time to get back to Pike. The expedition moved on, following the Arkansas River west and heading toward the Rocky Mountains. Pike was still following the trail left by the Spanish force that had preceded him. On the 18th of November, the expedition halted to hunt. They would kill 17 bison in a single day, and then spend the following day cutting up and preserving the meat, enough for another month. Several days later, Pike encountered a band of 60 Pawnee, a war party returning home. Pike offered the Pawnee gifts, tobacco, knives, and flints, but the Pawnees wanted more and proceeded to ransack Pike's camp. Pike ordered his men to arms, and he got on his horse and threatened to shoot the next Indian who touched their baggage. It was a dangerous situation. One false move could have meant a melee, and the Americans were badly outnumbered. But Pike was lucky. The Pawnee were not in a mood to fight. They left, but they took many items with them, including canteens, swords, and axes. Pike was furious about the incident, seeing it as nothing more than common highway robbery. He felt humiliated that a savage, his term, had been able to simply take something off his person. On November 23rd, Pike ordered a stockade built at what is present-day Pueblo, Colorado. The Mexican mountains were before him, and Pike decided that the coolest thing in the world would be to climb to the top of the Grand Peak, which was about 50 miles to the north. Pike, Dr. Robinson, and Privates John Brown and Theodore Miller set off north. Pike expected to reach the mountain in a mere afternoon, ascend to the summit, and return the following day. The party's lack of accurately estimating distance and height was going to be an issue here. It would take the men two days to reach the base of the foothills. That was their first mistake. But their second mistake was much more dangerous. Pike and his men thought they could climb the peak and return in a single day. Thus they cached their supplies, including most of their food and blankets, and headed up. Pike and his party were likely around the 6,500-foot mark when they began their ascent. 
It was not an easy climb. The men would struggle up all day and be forced to spend the night in a small cave, without proper clothing, blankets, or food. The next day they would continue on, and that morning they came to the peak of what is now called Mount Rosa. Pike had expected the Grand Peak to be right next door, but it was here that he realized he was at least 15 miles away. Again, that whole inability to judge distances was really messing him up. The summit of Mount Rosa is about at the 11,500-foot mark. Pike was no doubt disappointed in not reaching the top of the Grand Peak, but in reality, it was a blessing. If he had actually been climbing the Grand Peak, he would have been tempted to try and reach the summit, and that might have been deadly. There was no food to be had at that altitude, and in late November, the cold and the snow only get worse the higher you go. The small detachment would return to the camp at the base of Mount Rosa, where they would eat for the first time in two days. The next day, they would head back to the stockade, reaching it after a two-day march. At this point, nearly December, it would have been entirely reasonable for Pike to head home. He had not found the headwaters of the Arkansas or made contact with the Comanches, but snow was beginning to fall as winter approached, and the expedition was not prepared for extreme cold. They did not have winter boots or coats or gloves, and as noted, supplies were dwindling. And let's be honest, the mountains were kind of the rough border for the Louisiana Purchase. If Pike wanted to go further into them to follow the Arkansas, he was taking a risk. This was Spanish territory, and if he was discovered, it could lead to dire consequences. But as with the trip up the Mississippi, we will find just how dogged and determined Pike can be. He had a task before him, and forward he would go. Pike thus resumed his trek up the Arkansas River on November 30th. The Arkansas cuts into the mountain, and the elevation rises with each day. It was not long before snow and cold became an issue. The men were forced to cut buffalo hide into makeshift moccasins to replace their boots, which were beginning to fall apart after months of wear. On December 5, 1806, the party reached the Royal Gorge, near what is now Canyon City, Colorado. Here the Arkansas breaks off into several streams, and Pike didn't know which was the main branch of the river. Also, the trail left by the Spanish force they had been following had disappeared. The Americans broke up in smaller parties and spent more than a week scouting each of the options before discovering what they thought were signs of the Spanish heading up a northerly stream or trail. Pike should have followed the river into the Royal Gorge, but he seems to have been convinced the best route to follow was the one the Spanish had taken. Perhaps the river was low at that point, and he felt the Royal Gorge wasn't the main route of the Arkansas. Who knows? In his journals, he reports following a stream north, so maybe he felt that since the Spanish were following a stream, that was the best route to take. Again, if there was ever a time to turn around, it was now. That the Spanish would head north was questionable and that Pike would want to follow the trail, which went higher up into the mountains, was even more risky. The tributary Pike elected to follow, of course, was not the Arkansas, but likely an Indian trail along one of the many creeks that flowed throughout the region. But Pike did not know this, so overland they went. On December 14th, the party came to a wide frozen river. Pike guessed correctly that it was the South Platte River. Again, I recommend taking a look at the map on explorerspodcast.com, just to get an idea of where Pike is and what he's seen. The party would follow the South Platte upstream for two days, reaching the South Park area, a flat, high-altitude mountain prairie region. But here, there was nowhere else really to go. The South Platte's river source was here, and Pike could see that the river emerged out of the nearby mountains. Also, Pike reported seeing a large host of Indians in the area. He estimated 3,000 of them, likely Comanches and Kiowas. In reality, Pike was lost. He realized he had likely been following signs left by Indians, not the Spanish. 
The region was now covered in snow, his food was running low, and several horses had died. Some of the men's rifles had burst in the cold, and there was no obvious trail to follow here, and Pike had no desire to engage a large force of Indians. So Pike did the sensible thing and turned around. The expedition descended the South Platte for a day before leaving the river and heading into the Mosquito Range to the southwest. His hope was that he could find the Red River once he crossed the mountains. It was a risky move heading off the South Platte, but Pike would be lucky. On December 18th, his party would cross the range, and they found a wide, flowing river. All these rivers are probably kind of confusing right now, but again, to keep it simple, just remember that Pike has been following the Arkansas. At the Royal Gorge, he followed a stream north, but that was not the Arkansas, but he didn't know that. So when he went cross-country southwest, he wasn't expecting to see the Arkansas River, so he assumed that this new river they had just found was the Red River. Only he had actually stumbled upon the Arkansas again. Got that? Okay. If you're confused, again, please check out the maps on explorerspodcast.com. It will make things a lot clearer. The troops stopped for several days to rest at this juncture, while Pike and two men, Privates Mountjoy and Miller, headed up the river. Within two days, they would reach what is modern-day Leadville, Colorado, which sits at an elevation of over 10,000 feet. The three men would follow the Arkansas until it was only about 10 or 15 feet wide and flowed down out of the mountains. They described it as a mere brook. This was the source of the Arkansas River. When Pike regrouped with his men, we find that they were cold, remember they don't have proper clothing for the mountains, and hungry, as the food they had prepared a month earlier was gone. Plus, men were beginning to get sick, and they were weakening. Luckily, the party were able to fell several bison here, and Pike and his men would spend Christmas Day with full stomachs. Next, the troop would head south, down the Arkansas. Travel was treacherous as the route turned into a series of narrow canyons. Sometimes the river was frozen, sometimes it wasn't. At one point, the river is no more than 30 feet across, with canyon walls a 1,000 feet high on both sides. It was no doubt an overwhelming situation. The horses could barely continue on the ice, and Pike was constantly noting the injuries, cuts and bruises that the horses sustained from constantly falling. There were times where the men would simply have to drag the horses across the ice. The party built sleds to try and move things along, which met with mixed success. Food was also quickly becoming an issue, as game was scarce in the canyons. Pike sent parties off in various directions, away from the river, to try and find food. At one point, Pike had some of his men attempt to follow the canyon's rim, only to have things become so treacherous that one of the horses fell off the ledge. Pike was forced to shoot the animal to put it out of its misery. On January 4, 1807, Pike had his men divided into eight groups. Some were hunting, others were hauling baggage, others scouting out alternative routes. Food was all but gone, and Pike reported that they had not eaten in two days. It was here that the river, which was not frozen at this point, filled up the entire canyon. He, along with two of his men, were forced to climb a wall of ice to escape the canyon. The next day, Pike found that his rifle was bent, and he wrote that he was in, quote, despair, unquote, as it was his most prized possession. That same day, he took another man's weapon and kept moving down the river. As noted, he had managed to escape the canyon, and that morning he climbed a peak along the rim of the canyon and realized where he was. He was back where he had started a month ago, at modern-day Canyon City in the Royal Gorge. He knew that he was back on the Arkansas. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Over the next few days, Pike and his men regrouped. The horses that had survived were exhausted, just like the men. Pike would take several days to consider his options. His original plan was to find the source of the Arkansas, mission accomplished, by the way, and then go south and try and hook up with the Red River, and then to send the Red to the Mississippi. If he wanted to do this, he simply could have taken shelter at this location and weathered the winter, then headed south in the spring. Or he could have pushed back down the Arkansas to the plains and then went south from there, where the weather was much more mild. Of course, he could have headed home, but remember this is Zebulon Pike we're talking about. That is not in the cards. So what did Pike do? Well, he went with a different option. He would go south, but now, in the middle of winter, and try and locate the Red River. Pike would leave two of his men and the horses at a stockade that they built, while the rest of the men would come with him. Beginning on January 14th, the troop would follow the Grape Creek south. Before them loomed the Sangre de Cristos mountain range. Pike and his men would have to find a pass through the mountains, which were quite imposing, in middle of winter. The decision was a questionable one. Maybe questionable is mild. His decision is actually really pretty crazy. The snow is two feet deep, supplies are low, including food, proper clothing, and ammunition. And again, the men were exhausted and weak. It was frankly nuts to go blindly into the mountains under such conditions. But Pike decided it was the thing to do. Perhaps it betrayed an obsessiveness in his personality. Who knows? As a result, the next couple of weeks would be the most perilous of the journey. On January 17th, the party would be forced to cross the still-flowing Grape Creek, It would be a disastrous decision, as the men would end up marching in wet feet as the temperature dropped to 10 below zero. I will let Jared Orsi, in his book Citizen Pike, describe what happened to the men. Quote, Frostbite first grips the extremities of the circulatory system, fingers, noses, and toes, sometimes within as little as 30 minutes. After fording Grape Creek and hiking for several more miles, the men would first have felt stinging and burning. Then they would have begun to lose sensation in their extremities. By the time they reached camp, they probably were hobbling on feet they could no longer feel. End quote. A fire was quickly made, and the men likely placed their frozen feet next to it. The wrong thing to do. The feet thaw too rapidly, and they will swell and blister. Then they become engorged. At this point, Pike's men would not have been able to put their boots back on. The tissue damage gets worse as the toes freeze again, and then are thawed. Eventually, the damage is so bad, gangrene sets in. By morning, nine of Pike's men could not walk. It was the most desperate of times for Pike at this moment. He was stuck in the middle of nowhere, nine of his 14 men unable to walk. They had gone four days without eating, 
and to top it off, the weather was getting worse. If you read Pike's journals, you can see hypothermia setting in. Pike needed to hunt, but at one point he sounds as if he's just ready to close his eyes and give up. He was confused, almost apathetic. It was then that a small herd of bison passed Pike, and he and Dr. Robinson, likely using a surge of adrenaline, felled one of the animals. It would save them, and Pike and his men would live on. On January 22nd, seven of the injured men were well enough to walk, but two of the soldiers, including Private Sparks, the party's best hunter, had blackened toes and could not move. Pike would make the gut-wrenching decision to leave the two men and push on. He promised to find the pass and send back a rescue party, but the men probably felt as if their fates were already sealed. The push south was brutal, the snow so heavy the men could at times only see ten feet in front of them. On January 24th, the party made their first attempt to cross the Sangres, but they were turned back by deep snows. That night, Pike was forced to rebuke one of his men, Private Brown, for a seditious and mutinous talk. Pike threatened to execute the man if he showed such ingratitude, as all the men were suffering just like himself. It is extraordinary that such talk had not come up before. It seems unlikely that the men had not questioned many of Pike's decisions. Perhaps it was soldiers being soldiers. They follow orders and don't question them. Perhaps it was a loyalty and a respect for Pike. Maybe some of both, or perhaps something different. No matter, Brown nor any other man questioned Pike's decisions again. At least that was ever recorded. On January 27th, the party made another attempt to cross the mountains, at a place now called Madano Pass, although before they made their assault, they were forced to leave one man behind who couldn't continue. Again, they told the man that they would return once they had found the way through the Sangres. So into the mountains Pike and his men went. The party would crest the range later that day and spy a broad river in the distance. Despite all the obstacles, Pike had found his pass over the mountains. The troop would descend the next day, emerging in hills of sand, which today is the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Pike would march his men to the river, which he assumed was the Red. But again, Pike's assumption was incorrect. He was actually at the northern leg of the Rio Grande River. Many people associate the Rio Grande River as the border between Texas and Mexico, which is true. But at the westernmost edge of Texas, the river turns north, towards the river's source in southwestern Colorado. But Pike thought he was on the Red River, a fact that he would soon discover. The Red River was actually several hundred miles southeast from their location. The party reached the river on January 30th, and then they went south, where they set up camp where the Conejos River flows into the Rio Grande. Pike would order a stockade built. Thankfully, the weather was milder here, and there was game. The men would finish their stockade in about a week. It would be 36 feet square and 12 feet high. When they were done, Pike would raise the American flag above the small fortress. Quick side note, there is a replica of the small stockade Pike built at its original location, so if you are ever near Sanford, Colorado, in the southern part of the state, not far from the New Mexico border, it's probably a cool little side trip. Okay, back to the story. With the stockade complete, Pike would send back a party of five men to retrieve those who had been left on the other side of the mountains. And it is now that our tale turns from one of survival to intrigue. Remember Dr. Robinson? The man had slogged his way through thick and thin with Pike and the soldiers, and had given no evidence of being anything but a faithful member of the party but now he makes an extraordinarily bizarre request. Robinson asked if he could continue south, alone, to Santa Fe. He told Pike that he wanted to go and collect a debt that was owed a business associate. If you are looking at the map, Santa Fe is almost exactly south of where Pike and his men were. The city is about 130 or so miles from his stockade. 
Pike called the pretense to go to Santa Fe spurious in his writings, but in the end, he would let Robinson go. Several issues here. First, Pike knows he's in Spanish territory. By letting Robinson head south, he risks alerting the Spanish to his presence, and that is not a smart thing. Second, that he would let Robinson go south to Santa Fe sets off the conspiracy buzzers, and it is why some have questioned if Pike had ulterior motives all along for the expedition. I mean, why had Pike needlessly pushed south over the Sangres Mountains, directly toward Santa Fe? Was that the plan all along, to scout the city for trade opportunities? Again, most historians tend to dismiss these charges against Pike. He pushed over the Sangres Mountains in the snow? Well, get in line. The guy had plunged into the Minnesota winter the previous year, and he had floundered around the Rockies to the north just a few months before, never stopping, never turning back. In my opinion, he did what he thought he should do. Keep pushing on, complete the mission. That is Pike. That Pike let Robinson go to Santa Fe was probably a serious lapse in judgment, but it is not inexcusable. Pike wrote that he believed Americans had the right to collect a debt, even on foreign soil. So perhaps the idealistic officer simply couldn't say no to the man asking for his basic rights to be observed. The other option may be Pike knew Robinson's intentions. Perhaps he had been told by Wilkins something like, Hey, if you can let Pike slip into Santa Fe, just to have a look around, we'd really appreciate it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you get the picture. In the end, Robinson went. As stated, he was likely a spy for Wilkinson, sent to investigate Santa Fe, the region, and the economic, as well as military prospects. So, with Robinson gone, the men at the stockade waited for the rescue parties to return. They would trickle in over the next week, but the two men with frostbite still could not be moved. They had, in fact, self-amputated their toes and they had sent them back to Pike with a plea not to abandon them. It was a desperate and grisly way to remind their commander of his responsibility, and Pike would not forget them. But now, things are going to get upended. On February 16th, while out hunting, Pike was spotted by two men on horseback. The Spanish had found the Americans. Pike would invite the two men back to the stockade, and they would spend the night there. They did not speak English or French, and Pike's Spanish translator was not at the camp, so the two departed the next morning, indicating more men would come. And more men would come, 100 of them specifically, soldiers. Thankfully, no one was in a mood for a fight. The Americans were bedraggled and worn down, and the Spanish seemed to be more confused by their presence than hostile. Pike immediately took down the American flag that he was flying when he was told he was not on the Red River, but the Rio Grande. He had been instructed by Wilkinson to feign innocence if he encountered the Spanish, but by most accounts, Pike really did think he was on the red, so his reactions were likely genuine. But another conspiracy theory here. Pike had gone to great lengths to end up in Spanish territory. Could he have done it on purpose? He had let Robinson go to Santa Fe. Again, had that been the plan all along? He had then built a small fort and raised an American flag on Spanish lands. Again, was that all on purpose? A way to incite the Spanish to go to war with America. Was Wilkinson that devious that he would have sent Pike out into the wilderness in the hope that they would get discovered so that they could cause a row between the two nations? Again, I'm going to say, likely not. Wilkinson had plenty of opportunities the previous year to start a war if he had wanted to. The consensus is that Pike was innocent of any underhanded stuff. He was just trying to survive a really, really bad winter. So the Spanish then invited, and I use air quotes on that one, Pike and his men to Santa Fe. In reality... Our friend Zebulon was a prisoner. With not all of his men returned, Pike wanted to wait before he set out south, but the Spanish were insistent, so Pike would leave a contingent under Sergeant Meek at the stockade, and the Spanish promised to bring the other men to Santa Fe when they all arrived. 
Reluctantly, Pike and six of his men headed south, escorted by the Spanish army. At this point in our story, Pike's explorations are pretty much wrapped up. His journey through New Mexico and Texas and Mexico are quite interesting, but at this point, it's really all downhill, so we're going to stick to the highlights. Pike and his men were first led to Santa Fe. The Spanish seemed to have dealt with Pike and his men as curiosities. Everywhere they went, men and women came out to gawk at them, and despite being prisoners, they would be treated well. During his time with the Spanish, Pike would be invited to balls and dinners, a guest of honor, not an enemy. But let's be straight here. Pike was a prisoner. The Spanish just had to figure out exactly how to deal with him. They were not totally sure what he was up to and what kind of threat he was, if any. And let's remember, the tensions that had existed the previous year between the United States and Spain had subsided, and no one really wanted to go back to the two nations on the brink of war. Eventually, Pike was sent south to El Paso, and from there to the city of Chihuahua in northern Mexico, the provincial capital. He would spend almost a month there, free to roam the city, but not to leave. The Spanish would eventually confiscate Pike's writings, but he hid many items, rolling up his papers and putting them into the barrel of a musket, for instance. So while he would lose many of his original journal entries, some would be saved. Ultimately, the provincial governor, Emisio Saucedo, seems to have decided that the Americans were not worth the trouble of having around. Yes, they had crossed into Spanish territory, but there was no proof that they were spying or trying to ferment revolution with the populace, and they had been cooperative. But the Americans had also brought ideas, like talk of independence, ideas the Spanish government didn't want their people talking about. And with that in mind, Pike did note that the population was ripe for rebellion, something the government wanted to keep a damper on. Another important point, Pike is not a random merchant who wandered into Santa Fe hoping to make a buck. He is a United States soldier and official representative of the government. The Spanish government couldn't just hold him indefinitely. They needed to do something with him and his men. Thus, they sent them home. After Chihuahua, Pike and his six men were then escorted to San Antonio, and then on to Natchitoches, 360 miles away. On June 30, 1807, almost a year since departing from St. Louis, Pike and six of his men, plus Dr. Robinson, crossed the Subine River into the United States. So Pike was home. He had delivered the Indians. He had been assigned back to their villages. He had treated with the Pawnee. He had reached the source of the South Platte and the Arkansas rivers. He had also gotten captured and in the process shown all over New Mexico, Texas, and northern Mexico. I couldn't find any exact distance Pike covered on his journey, but I did a quick Google Maps route and I came up with around 3,500 miles. It had been a long and hard journey, but Pike was home. Hooray. But there is a lot of stuff to wrap up with Pike. Let's start with some observations about Pike's time in custody with the Spanish. In a lot of ways, the Spanish would let him become the ultimate spy. They took him not just to Santa Fe, but to El Paso, and then Chihuahua, and all through northern Mexico, and then Texas. He spent months essentially being given a free tour of potential enemy territory, and they let Pike pretty much roam free wherever he went. And while he wasn't supposed to write down anything during this time, his captors seemed to have pretended that rule didn't exist. So he brought home lots of notes. No spy could have dreamed of being given more access than he had been granted. Whether Wilkinson wanted Pike to spy on the Spanish or not, Pike would return to the United States with a goldmine of information. Next, let's see what happened to the rest of Pike's men. First, two of the men in Pike's command, Private Theodore Miller and Sergeant William Meek, had risked their lives to bring back the last of the men over the Sangres, including the two who had lost their toes to frostbite. Unfortunately, the two men, who had been friends, had a falling out after Miller insulted Meek. We don't know why. 
but the two held a grudge against each other, and that would come to a head in early May. They got into a fight, alcohol may have been involved, and Miller was killed. Meek would be put on trial for murder, but Spanish justice seems to have been slow. The case dragged on for several years with no resolution ever being noted. Sergeant Meek, however, would not be allowed to leave Mexico for 14 years. He would finally return to the United States in 1821. That leaves the six other soldiers who had fallen behind Pike. Being common enlisted men, there was no real urgency to release them. The Spanish government would finally send them home, but not until 1809. Finally, that leaves Dr. John H. Robinson. The man, honestly, is a curiosity. At one point, he offered Governor Saucedo his services as an explorer for the Spanish Empire, even proposing to become a Spanish citizen. It all seems kind of like the guy was sucking up to the Spanish, but who knows. Salcedo doesn't seem to have taken the man seriously, and Robinson was shipped back to the United States with Pike. And the offer to join the Spanish is interesting because Robinson would become a proponent of Mexican independence upon his return home. So who knows what the guy was up to? To me, he sort of seems like a grand schemer, not unlike Wilkinson, so that he got mixed up with the general isn't a great surprise. Anyhow, he got home. He would eventually return to Mexico as an official envoy from the United States. However, Robinson would contract yellow fever in 1819 and die at the age of 37. So with the expedition accounted for, we have two more men to revisit, Aaron Burr and General James Wilkinson. Burr would be put on trial for treason in August of 1807. However, the famed letter that Wilkinson had sent to Jefferson was not allowed into evidence. That's because while during the grand journey testimony, the star witness for the prosecution, James Wilkinson, screwed up. The general was just not a good witness. Under questioning, he admitted to doctoring the incriminating letter, and to many, Wilkinson came off as a fool and a scoundrel and a charlatan. He would not testify at Burr's trial. As for Burr, while he had plotted and schemed, he had not actually done anything. He had not taken up arms against the Spanish or the Americans, and he had not invaded Texas. The charge of treason is difficult to prove, and thus in September, Burr was acquitted. The former vice president would go abroad after the trial, he apparently spent several years pursuing his dream of launching an invasion of Mexico, but he found no takers. He would eventually return to New York and practice law under the name of Edwards, supposedly to avoid creditors. Burr would die in 1836. He was 80 years old. The other key player in our opera was General James Wilkinson. He came out of the Burr trial humiliated. He would face a barrage of accusations, including the rumors of his involvement with Spain. But the man was slippery. He would survive two congressional inquiries as well as a court-martial before being exonerated by his peers in 1811. Wilkinson may have been down, but he was still an influential man. So in 1812, when war broke out with England, he was back in the saddle. This time, it was as a major general. In 1813, he would lead the American forces in the capture of Mobile, Alabama, his first and only military victory he had ever overseen in his career. But subsequent campaigns in the St. Lawrence region would be disastrous, and Wilkinson would be relieved of his command. He would be discharged from the army in 1815. After the war, Wilkinson would wrangle the post of envoy to Mexico for a time. Then he seems to have gotten involved in land speculation in the now-independent nation, always scheming to make a buck. He would eventually die in Mexico in 1825 at the age of 68. In 1854, the correspondences between Wilkinson and Esteban Rodriguez Miro Louisiana's colonial governor between 1785 and 1791 became public, and Wilkinson's traitorous nature would be revealed to the world. Historian Frederick Jackson Turner called Wilkinson, quote, the most consummate artist in treason this nation ever possessed, end quote. In 
And American President Teddy Roosevelt would have this to say about Wilkinson, quote, In all our history, there is no more despicable character, end quote. I would say that the man's place in history is set, and it is not a pretty one. Finally, that gets us back to Zebulon Pike. He had returned home to find that he had been promoted to captain, and the expedition Wilkinson had sent him on had been approved, after the fact, by Jefferson. All good there. He had accomplished many of the goals set out before him, and while being captured by the Spanish had not been one of those goals, the fact that it had happened would be a boon for American intelligence. Unfortunately for Pike, he had returned to the United States in middle of the Burr trial, and his mentor, General Wilkinson, was under fire from all sides. Many saw Wilkinson as a traitor and a rogue, and painted Pike with the same brush. Pike would never turn on Wilkinson, firmly believing that the general to be a decent and honest man. Pike went to Washington shortly after returning home to trumpet his accomplishments as well as to lobby the powers to be for some reward for him and his men. While in custody of the Spanish, he and his men had acquired two grizzly bear cubs. Pike brought the bears, now much bigger, to Washington and presented them to President Jefferson, who was reportedly delighted to see them. And while many were grateful and acknowledging of Pike, he would be disappointed that he and his men were not granted the same accolades as Lewis and Clark. Again, the taint of Wilkinson and Burr was around Pike, and many did not want to stand too close to him, at least not so soon after the Burr trial. In the end, Pike was cleared of being involved in any scandals. He set out writing his journals, starting with his trip up the Mississippi and ending with his return to Louisiana. He would have to recount much of the second expedition from memory, as the Spanish had confiscated many of his original entries. The journals would be published in 1810, and as noted, they were not particularly well written, but they were, however, packed with lots and lots of information. It let the world really understand the grueling journey he and his men had endured, and the maps and descriptions Pike had made would be essential to the next wave of explorers, merchants, and settlers who would push west in the coming decades. Pike would be promoted to major in 1808, then lieutenant colonel the following year. In 1812, war would break out between the United States and England, and Pike, now a full colonel, would lead the 15th New Jersey Regiment to the Canadian border. The war would go badly for the United States in the first year. America needed a win. In April of 1813, Pike would be promoted to Brigadier General. He and his men would be part of a plan to capture the city of York, which is modern-day Toronto. Pike, in command of approximately 1,700 men, attacked the area around the fort defending the city on April 27, 1813. The Americans, who outnumbered the British more than two to one, quickly gained the advantage and forced the British to withdraw. Pike meticulously moved his men forward, capturing enemy troops and batteries and bringing up heavy guns as needed. In the early afternoon, the Americans were preparing for a final assault on the British fortifications. The British, however, were in retreat. The commander, General Roger Hale Sheaf, ordered the fort's powder magazine to be blown. Unfortunately, the magazine exploded prematurely. The stone from the fort sailed into the air and rained down on British and American troops. When the dust cleared, the blast alone would kill 40 British soldiers and 38 Americans. The Americans would suffer 222 wounded. Amongst the casualties was General Zebulon Pike. At the time of the blast, Pike had been interrogating a prisoner. His entire body, including his head, was pummeled by flying projectiles. He had been badly wounded. As Pike was being carried from the battlefield, a great huzzah was heard, and Pike reportedly asked what was happening. He was told the Union Jack was being taken down as the British had surrendered, and the American flag was going up. Pike reportedly said, Push on, my brave fellows, and avenge your general. Pike was rowed out to the USS Madison on Lake Ontario. The British flag that had flown above the fort was brought out to the ship and placed under his head as a pillow. 
He would die a few hours later. Zebulon Montgomery Pike was 34 years old. He had died what he would have judged a glorious death. I doubt he could have asked for a much more noble or honorable way to pass. He had died winning a battle, fighting bravely and honorably, and leading his men to victory. The child of the revolution had died fighting for his nation. Pike's death at York gave him the glory he so desperately desired. Across the nation, men and women mourned his passing. He had been a source of success in an otherwise dismal war. People gave eulogies and toasts to Pike. Poems were composed in his honor. So, let's take stock in the man starting with his family. Pike's mother, Isabella, had died in 1809, but his father, Zebulon Pike Sr., would live on until 1834. Pike's wife, Clara, would die in 1847. She was reportedly destitute later in her life, as the government never granted Pike or his men any special compensation for undertaking the expedition into the Louisiana Territory. The Pike's only surviving child, Clarissa, would marry John Cleves Harrison, the son of American President William Henry Harrison. They would have seven children. Clarissa would die at a young age in 1832. As for Pike himself, I don't want to dwell too much on his legacy. For many people, myself included, he is a mix of a man. He had done so much, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't a brilliant, easy-to-identify thing. As we said in the last podcast, he really didn't find anything cool or do anything really amazing, so it makes it hard to pin a label on him. Some of his critics have called him a bumbler, that he got lost and got captured. And they would be right, at least to some degree. My biggest criticism of Pike is that on several occasions he just made some plain, reckless decisions. There were times where he should have pulled back or just stayed put, but he moved forward. He risked the lives of his men by doing so, and put them at times under terrible stress. As for getting lost, I would argue that, to a degree, being lost is part of being an explorer. You are in the unknown. Getting lost is a risk you take, so I'm not going to ding the guy on that. In the end, he really had a pretty incredible journey. The expeditions up the Mississippi and west into the Louisiana Territory drew in a lot of the big blank map that was sitting on desks back east. It allowed Thomas Jefferson and the others that followed to connect dots and make leaps that they had not been able to do previously. In a lot of ways, Pike was a precursor to the belief of Manifest Destiny, the idea that America was a special and virtuous place whose destiny was to encompass all the lands between the East and West Coasts. Pike, we have seen, was a fervent nationalist. He very much believed in the United States and the ideals of Western enlightenment. To him, his travels were a greater duty, and he was forever proud of what he had accomplished. And that leaves us with an interesting thought. Pike was an explorer who wasn't in it for the money. Sure, he wanted to be acknowledged and rewarded, but he had done this for his nation, not for gold or land or titles. I also want to note that no one died in Pike's world. This was not like the Spanish, slaughtering hundreds and thousands to acquire gold and silver. And Pike's own men, well, he got them back, save for the one killed by the other soldier, and that's not a bad deal. Yes, Pike's coming heralded a change, a devastating change for many, especially the native Indians. But Pike was not there to squeeze them of gold or make them slaves. Pike's death in 1813 would bring him fame and notoriety. There would be towns and counties and parks named after the hero of the War of 1812, as well as ships and forts. The Pike National Forest in Colorado, which was named after Zebulon, encompasses much of the area that he traipsed through over 200 years ago. Finally, there is Pike's Peak. Zebulon Pike certainly wasn't the first to have seen it, he had wanted to desperately climb to its summit, but was turned back by the elements. Edwin James, a just-graduated student from Vermont, would be the first man to climb the mountain in 1820. 
Today, Pikes Peak can be reached by car, as well as a cog train. Not to mention you can hike to the top. You just don't do it in winter. It is a stunning place to go, and I highly recommend making the trip if you can. The view is beyond magnificent. The final thing I want to say is with regard to the sources of this podcast. I am most indebted to historian Jared Orsi, who wrote Citizen Explorer. It's a great look at Pike's life, and if you want to learn more, he delves not just into Pike, but the plots of Burr and Wilkinson, and more importantly, the American makeup of the time. He really demonstrates the motivations of men like Pike and Jefferson, and it is well worth the read. I also have to give Pike himself a nod. His original journals, while hard to read at times, are great, and the later editions have been heavily annotated, making them a lot easier to understand. Pike's journals really give us a unique chance to live through the day-to-day exploits of the man. Sometimes we don't often get to do that with historic figures, so this is really fun. Please check out explorerspodcast.com. I have links to all these books, as well as other sources, not to mention some photos and maps. I also encourage you to leave your thoughts and comments on the site, or even better, head over to iTunes and rate the podcast. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps get the word out, and that means I can keep doing this. So thank you. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series on American Explorer Zebulon Montgomery Pike. Thank you again for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.